We are going to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We're in verses 26 to 33. We're also jumping down to pick up verses 39 and 40, which relate. And I want to begin with a a question this morning, and that is, why should anyone go to church? Why do you go to church? Why are you here this morning? And what do you hope will happen? We've already given some answers to that this morning. What would need to happen? What would you need to be what would you need to experience this morning to be able to say afterwards, I'm so glad I came? Are you hoping to be inspired or to be encouraged? to learn something new about God or about the Bible or about how to live a better life? Are you hoping to have an encounter with God? Are you hoping to see friends or to make friends, to have a meaningful conversation or some uh, stimulating discussion or to make a meaningful connection? Would it make your day if you made a business connection this morning? or if you got to talk to the pastor, or if you got asked on a date, or you got to ask someone out, or if someone just listened to your problems, or would you be thrilled if your kids left today more excited and in love with God? What are you here for? And what are you hoping will happen? That's what today's passage is about. It's about what is supposed to happen when God's people gather together like we've gathered this morning and what purpose that gathering has. And in this case, it's the Apostle Paul, one of the leaders of the earliest church who the Holy Spirit has inspired to tell us what God wants to see happen when his people gather. And Paul is writing to a group of followers of Jesus Christ in in a Greek city called Corinth. And what's happening when these believers gather so long ago falls far short of what Paul knows should be happening. In fact, there are big problems with the Corinthians gatherings. And so Paul writes to try to sort out these problems, but also to affirm certain things that are going well in the Corinthians gatherings. Now, the first thing we need to realize as we read this passage this morning is how very different the gatherings of the early churches, and in this case, of the Corinthians were compared to our gatherings. Let me mention some of the differences. We meet in a special church building. They met in homes. We have a paid pastor. They did not. They had a few volunteer leaders. We sit in rows. They sat at tables, likely. We have maybe a little coffee or a bagel afterwards, they regularly shared a whole meal together. We can have anywhere from 70 to 120 people here, and if we had more space, we could have many more. They could not fit more than maybe 50 max in any of the houses that any of them owned. Some of us don't know each other very well, if at all. They likely all knew each other very well. We have usually only a few participating on a given Sunday. Most of you expect 
to come and sit passively and to receive. They had many people actively participating on a weekly basis. We follow a pre-planned order of service. We follow it quite closely. They were very spontaneous and likely didn't know ahead of time what was going to happen when they gathered. Our services are calm and predictable and fairly rational. Theirs, at least in the case of the Corinthians, were chaotic, out of control, but powerfully miraculous. In fact, if you were to rank church gatherings on a spectrum where on the one hand you have pre-scripted, predictable, uh, structured, inflexible, inflexible on the one hand, one side, and on the other you had crazy, chaotic, spontaneous, unpredictable, we'd be quite far on the one side and the Corinthians would be way over on the other. Have you ever been part of a spiritual gathering very different from ours here? I, I have, like many of you, many times. I have participated in prayer meetings with Africans where there was a lot of marching and shouting and dancing to the Lord. I have been in Romanian churches with five to 700 people gathered, all praying out loud at the same time. I've been in passionate worship nights with 20-somethings where the music was loud and the songs went on for 10 minutes and people were dancing and they were shouting or they were lying prostrate on the floor. I've been with people speaking in tongues and prophesying where you never knew what was going to happen next and if you would be comfortable with it. I've seen people faint and fall over because of spiritual experiences they were having. All of these really different from the typical CBC gathering as God's people gather together around the world. Though at CBC, we're, we're not always all order and organization, are we? I think back to when CBC had a separate communion service and people would show up and they would do sort of what we did this morning. They would share a song or a scripture or an encouraging thought that they'd prepared or that God had put on their heart during the week to share. Those services were significantly more spontaneous and participatory. Well, the point I'm getting at is that there's a challenge as we read today's passage and as we try to apply it. And that is that the Corinthians gatherings are very different from ours. And they had very different problems than maybe we have. And so when Paul is addressing them and correcting them, he's trying to pull them back in a direction that might be somewhat more like our gatherings. But since we're closer to the opposite end of the spectrum, if Paul was addressing us, he might give us almost exactly the opposite direction as he gives them. So we've got to do some translating and some applying as we look at this text, if it's going to be relevant to us. We've got to look at what they were doing and see what was good about it and what was bad and what was going too far and see what we could learn from that that might help us answer the question that I began with this morning. Why are you here this morning? And what are you hoping will happen? Let's start by listening to what Paul has to say that, that gives us some clue as to what was going on in the Corinthian gatherings. Verse 26, we've already read it. When you come together, each of you has a hymn, 
or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Notice that everyone is coming with something to offer. Everyone, or most people anyway, are participating. They're bringing a hymn. Actually, hymn can be a misleading translation here. Literally, the Greek word is psalmos. It could refer to a biblical psalm, or this Greek word can simply mean song, a song of praise of some sort. Not a hymn like we think of hymns today, because our hymns weren't written, most of them, until a few hundred years ago, and they're worshiping 2,000 years ago. So a psalmos for them would be whatever kind of song they were singing back then in their day. Some would come with a song to sing. Maybe they wrote this song. Maybe it already existed and they, they wanted to sing it or lead others in singing. Others, Paul tells us, brought a teaching, a word of instruction like I bring many weeks here. Maybe a shorter one. Maybe several of them brought short ones. Or they brought a revelation, a prophecy. They were open and prepared to receive something from God. We'll talk more about this this morning. Or a tongue. We talked about this last Sunday and we'll come back to it again. Or an interpretation of that tongue. So everyone is bringing something to share but evidently, here was the problem with this church. What everyone loved most in the Corinthians, among the Corinthians, was speaking in tongues. We saw this last Sunday. They were really proud that the Holy Spirit was enabling them to speak in languages they didn't know. It was miraculous. It made them feel really spiritual, and they took great pride in it. But the problem with giving so much time and space to speaking in tongues in their gatherings was not only could nobody understand each other, since these were unknown languages, but likely on top of it, they were all speaking in tongues at once. Maybe even trying to outdo each other to show off how spiritual they were. And so it was chaotic. Really different from us, right? But that's why Paul says next in verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongues, two or at most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. Stop the chaos, stop the confusion, one at a time, please. Verse 28, if there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. We saw this last Sunday. Paul loves the gift of tongues. He says it's great because if you're doing it, it can build you up spiritually. But it doesn't build anyone else up because no one can understand it. So don't do it publicly when you have the microphone, so to speak. Do it to yourself, quietly, talk to God, fine. But don't do it publicly unless someone there is enabled by the Holy Spirit to interpret what you're saying so others can understand it. And so they can be spiritually encouraged by it. Again, just common sense. Then Paul continues, verse 29. Two or three prophets should speak. Remember we saw last Sunday, a prophecy is a message that God reveals to someone, something they, they couldn't know by themselves, something that encourages or exhorts, that comforts, and that builds up others. And Paul said, this is a great gift to, to share and to use when you gather because it will build up the other people who are there. So Paul says, when you gather, have two or three people who are able to do this, give a prophecy. But again, one at a time. 
Verse 30, and if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop, for you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. If God gives you a revelation or a message to share, if it's genuinely from God, Paul is saying, God isn't going to take over your mind and body so that you are out of control. No, you will be in control, and so you will be able to wait your turn. Again, stop the chaos. But notice what else Paul wants them to do back in verse 29. The others should weigh carefully what is said. Paul is clear that prophecy should not be accepted at face value. They need to be tested. Discernment is needed as to whether this is really a message from God or just the speaker's imagination or agenda or even a false prophecy given by a different spirit than the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you, when I preach, you test what I say, right? You discern whether it's true. I hope you do. <laughs> I hope you check it against the scriptures to make sure it's in the Bible and that it's from the Bible and that it's sound and wise and true. And if it isn't, I hope you reject it. And I hope you say, boy, he had a bad morning this morning. I'm not taking that message home with me. Well, if we do that with teaching, how much more so with prophecy? When someone is speaking things off the cuff, which they didn't plan to say, which just kind of popped into their heart to share, and, and they think maybe it's from God, we've got to test that and to weigh it in community. And so if that ever happens to you, if, if you ever think you have a word from God for CBC, bring it to me, bring it to our elders, and we'll weigh it with you, and we'll decide if it should be shared with everyone or, or what we need to do about it. All right, let's jump down to verses 39 and 40 now. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid the speaking, for, uh, speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. I love this about Paul. Notice he doesn't overreact like Christians today are prone to overreact to just about everything. <laughs> this church in Corinth is a mess. There's chaos. And a lot of it has to do with speaking in tongues, evidently. They're abusing this gift. But rather than forbid the gift or tell them to stop, Paul does just the opposite. He says, don't forbid tongues. It's a valuable gift, but correct it. Use the gift properly. And even more, be eager to prophesy. Because prophecy is a gift that can really build up the church, as we saw last Sunday. Now, I don't know for sure, but I strongly suspect with Paul's emphasis on prophecy here that prophecy was particularly important for the Corinthians and for all the early Christians. Because remember, they didn't have the New Testament yet. They didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. They didn't have most of Paul's letters. Of course, now they have the book of 1 Corinthians, right? Because he just wrote them this letter. But they didn't have the whole New Testament. They only had what Paul and his team had taught them when that this church had been started and whatever they could remember of what Paul's team had said before they left. That's not a lot to go on. And so it seems really likely that prophecy 
was particularly important for them because God used it to directly teach them through the Holy Spirit about Jesus, about following him, about living out the gospel and the Christian life, much of the stuff that we now have in the New Testament. And that's not to say prophecy can't be valuable to us for other reasons and in other ways. All right, but let's step back from all of this, this detail now and see what the main thing is that Paul is getting at here. The Corinthians, when they gather, there's chaos. It's disorderly. Everyone seems to be speaking in tongues all at once, likely. Nobody even understands what anyone is saying. And so Paul put some specific parameters, some organization in place for their gatherings, all toward two goals. Not to make their services solemn or cerebral or even planned. Paul isn't trying to stifle their passion or their spirituality, but rather, first, their gatherings at least need to be fitting and orderly. Verse 40 again, everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And verse 33, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Notice, and I think this is really striking, Paul ties their, what their gathering is like and what the flavor is, what the vibe is, to what God is like. When God's people gather together, how we conduct ourselves should res reflect what our God is like. In this case, Paul reminds them and us that our God is a God of peace. A God of shalom, arene in Greek, as Sam reminded us a few weeks ago, if you were here on January 1st. It, it, this word means more than peace the way we use peace in English today. A God of shalom is a God of wholeness a God of flourishing, a God of healthy relationships, not a God of chaos, not a God of disorder or confusion or craziness, but order and peace and health. But let's not forget, the Corinthians needed that correction because they couldn't, or they needed that correction, but they couldn't be more different from us. We're way over on the plan side and on the organized side. And so let me ask, do our gatherings adequately and accurately reflect what God is like? God's creativity, God's awesomeness, God's joy-giving love, God's power. What might it look like for us to better reflect those qualities? Maybe some dancing, like they danced in the Old Testament. Maybe some more celebration, some more spontaneity or expressions of joy or other emotions. What we do when we gather should also fit the nature of the God we gather around. That's the first goal toward which Paul is correcting the Corinthians, correcting their gatherings. The second related goal is back in verse 26. And here Paul's repeating the same thing we saw last Sunday. He said five or six times in the first part of chapter 14. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Built up. A main reason that we gather together is so that we will be built up and that we will build each other up. What are you hoping will happen this morning? Why are you here? The Corinthians were supposed to show up 
with a song, with a teaching, with a tongue or an interpretation, with a prophecy, to build each other up. To build them up spiritually so that they knew Jesus better. So they felt more resolve and commitment to follow him. So that their faith increased. So that they were growing to be more like Jesus. More loving. More full of faith. More full of the gospel. More able to live and represent the kingdom of God to their neighbors out in the world. More unified with each other. More mature and wise and loving as a community. Built up. That's a main goal of gathering. I ask again, why are you here? What did you come hoping would happen this morning? I had a very interesting conversation with the elders of CBC. This was a number of of years ago. I don't know if any of our elders still remember this, but we were talking about the worship service, and I cautioned them on how easily we can turn our worship services into an idol. Into something we actually place before God. Into something that distracts us from the living God. Into an activity that we substitute in place of what the living God is actually asking of us. In seminary some years ago, I, did, uh, I wrote a research paper on worship. I was curious because we toss that word around all the time, right? We, we use it often to talk about the, the music, the, the singing time of our gatherings. But I wanted to know what the Bible means when the Bible uses the word worship. And I was astounded to discover that when the New Testament, once I got to the New Testament, I won't take time to tell you about the Old Testament just because we can talk about that later. But we're in the New Testament this morning. When the New Testament talks about what God's people do when they gather, it never uses the word worship to describe what these gatherings are about. I was, are you surprised? I was surprised to discover that. The New Testament never says that when Jesus' followers gather, they gather to worship. Of course, it does say that the early church sang, that they prayed, that they celebrated communion, that they ate a meal together, that there was teaching, that there was prophecy, etc. But the emphasis again and again on the New, in the New Testament, as Paul does in this passage, is that we gather through all these things to build each other up spiritually. Now, am I saying we shouldn't worship? Of course not. But do we even really know what worship is? It's a slippery word, so easy to use. It's in all the songs, but so unclear as to what it really means. A more helpful approach might be when we sing to God, when, we're te- when there's teaching, when we're planning the worship service, we could ask, is what we're doing, is what we're planning for our services, does it befit the God who we, we serve and believe in and worship? But also, is it enabling those who come to build each other up? And how can we do better so that people are better enabled to build each other up? Just as one quick example of what we actually find in the New Testament about this, there are plenty of others like this, but Colossians 3.16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach 
and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing with God with gratitude in your hearts. Notice even our singing to God, Paul describes as being done in a way that teaches and admonishes one another. Even our vertical interactions between us and God, what we think of as worship, should be done in a way that horizontally builds one another up. That's the emphasis we see again and again in the New Testament. Well, given the New Testament strong emphasis on building one another up, I, I once said something else to our leaders that um, maybe was equally controversial and raised their eyebrows as much as my caution about making our worship services an idol. And that was that I told them that if people could only choose one thing to participate in at CBC, one thing, I would be more happy in many cases if they chose to participate in a good small group or discipleship group than if they chose to participate in our Sunday services. You know why? Because a central reason we gather is to build each other up. And a good small group involves us sitting in a circle, getting to know each other, talking about our lives, and all participating and bringing something to build each other up. Which is a lot more like what the early church was doing when they gathered than what happens in most churches on Sunday mornings. When we're sitting in rows with strangers, singing a few songs, listening to a guy talk for half an hour. Now, I realize some of you get uncomfortable when I say things like this, but I'm just trying to measure the traditions that we've inherited up against what the Bible says, rather than accepting our traditions at face value. Of course, the, the traditional go-to verse for church attendance is Hebrews 10.25. Do not forsake the assembling of yours together the assembling of yourselves together. But let me just encourage you not to forget that when the early church that that was first addressed to assembled together, what were they doing? They were assembling in groups of less than 50, in a home, everyone was involved, building each other up. In fact, let's listen to Hebrews 10.25 in context, starting with verse 24. It's up on the screen, if you can see it. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up the habit of assembling together, as some of you are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Notice the two specific things we're supposed to do when we assemble together. And notice who's supposed to do them. We, all of us, are supposed to spur one another on. And we, all of us, are supposed to encourage one another. Let me ask you, can you personally spur on the others here and encourage the others here better in a Sunday service or in a smaller group? Both are valuable, both have a place, but if you could only choose one, I'd say choose whichever one allows you better to build other people up. I have a friend who, whose church has as one of their core values, we intentionally move people from rows 
into circles. Isn't that good? I wish I'd thought of that. <laughs> now they have a Sunday service, but that church realizes that the goal ultimately is to be a community that builds one another up. Why are you here this morning? What are you hoping will happen? Are you here for the show? To sit in a row and enjoy the show? Are you hoping for an encouraging, informative, and heartwarming God show? Or are you here because it's your duty to God? And you figure if you show up in body, maybe not in full soul, if you show up in body, then you've done your duty to God for the week and you can cross it off your list and go about your life. Why are you here? The Apostle Paul is clear. God's people gather to worship, yes, and also to build each other up, to encourage each other spiritually, to spur one another on to love and good deeds, to help each other grow to maturity as followers of Jesus. And so I hope you will come for that reason. And if that's not why you're here, I hope that the old advertisement from the Bay Department Store is true for you more than you came for at the Bay. <laughs> I hope you discover more than you came for. And I hope you discover that others here build you up so that you will come back ready to build others up as well. Let's pray.